Scrum. Welcome back, everybody, to the Pugnacious Cromcast, the most pugilistic podcast on the airwaves. We are your hosts. I'm Jonathan. I'm Luke. And I'm Josh. And before we get started with Season 5, Episode 4, The Bulldog Breed, let us talk about our libations. What are you drinking there, Luke? Ooh. Uh, we, me, but I guess, oh, I just stole it from you, too. No, 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 no. You could do it. Do it for both of us. We are drinking monkey shoulder blended malt scotch whiskey because I decided that I need to try some more scotch is and this one isn't affordable yet. I think it's uh, just above the middle of the the barkeep blended scotch. So it's not it's not single malt, uh, but it's it's pretty damn good. I like it. It's it is good. I just I just took my first drink. It's pretty good. It's not as uh, swampy as I expected it to be. Yeah, it's it's low on the peat. I think it's a Speyside blend. Uh, it has, I would say, like hints of it's caramely and vanilla-y and, and, you know, it's got a little bit of spiciness. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've, I've been digging on it. It's got a cool bottle. It's got monkeys. Does it go with an ice cube or a little bit of water or... I've been doing I've been doing just like a little splash of water or an ice cube and I have had it neat too but I found that the scotches that I've had that I like I like them with just a little bit of the water to sort of open up the flavors and I don't mean to sound pretentious that's like actually <laughs> I like it not quite so hot and I like to be able to like really I don't know swish it around my mouth that's what it says on the label What was that scotch you brought to Bourbon and Bond night that one time it had like the rock lid. Oh, oh, that uh, was something pricey that you got yeah, for your wedding. My cousin got me that. It was Glen Meringue Signet, which is like the only bottle of like high end whiskey I think that I've, I've really ever had. Yeah. And that was that was delicious. I don't even know if that rightly tasted like a like a. Ver- I don't know. It was it was it was a scotch, but it was also like a not. Not peaty, not smoky, very middle of the road whiskey, and it was so damn smooth. Yeah, that stuff was good. That was nice. Yeah, Alois, otherwise known as Mike on the Bourbon and Barbarians podcast, he likes Talisker. Have you ever had that scotch? I haven't. That's on my list. No, he says that's really good. What, I, did, what uh, did we have? What we've we've tried uh, one other scotch that was real peaty. We had. We've had Lafroy. Lafroy. Yeah, uh, and I've had like. Johnny Walker Black, and I've had Glenn Levitt. I don't know. I think I'm going to start picking up like alternating bottles of bourbon or rye with a bottle of scotch just to try some more. So expect more cheap-ass scotch reviews <laughs> on the Chromecast because <laughs> I will not be delving into the, the deeper end of single malts. You will see me reviewing uh, 15 to $35 bottles of scotch. <laughs> 
<laughs> the the top of the bottom shelf. It's there you go. It's our dude. next spinoff: Luke's Libation and Rhythm and Blues Review. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta say, I'm pretty proud of uh, Nomad Jim because he's been importing some some bourbons and trying them, and uh, tweeting us or facebooking us when he when he does. And I know that he's tried some Benchmark. Uh, I think he's tried the uh, Wild Turkey 101. And uh, just this week, he told us about his adventure with Elijah Craig. Yeah. Yeah. What does it What does it take to get a bottle of bourbon across the Atlantic? I would like to know that. I, I would be know. curious to know. Yeah. Probably a lot up. of money. I yeah, I don't know. Let us know that. <laughs> hey, hey, John, can I derail uh, drink drink talk? Well, it's, it's another drink thing, but can I ask you a question? Yeah. Uh, have you had Wild Turkey 81? How do you how do you feel about it? Um, again, not to sound pretentious, as you said before, but I just like the 101. It feels harder. I don't know. I, mm. Like it, the other 81 is watered down to me because I, I started out on 101, so it that's the one I prefer. So I've not I've not I've not ever had the 81, but I bought a bottle of it not like not too long ago, and it is smooth as silk. It's really good. Uh, but you're right. It is like. I'm not going to say it's like half strength, but it is, it's, it's a, it's a different taste than the 101, but I mean, it's smooth. Like it's, it goes like shot for shot with benchmark for just being like something you could just up in the bottle and just go with. <laughs> it is like super, super mellow. So Belushi, that thing. Yeah. Belushi. Uh, I will say that I've recently gone through a bottle of town branch bourbon and this was, I think the second bottle of it that I've had maybe. And I wouldn't recommend that. I just can't recommend it. it the bottle is cool, but the bourbon itself just kind of seems right? flat. Yeah, it's it's not the best. So it's I made in town, right? It is made in town. Yeah, <laughs> it's unfortunate because yeah, you're right. Like the packaging of it's nice, but I had one bottle back when, and I thought, Meh. yeah, kind of take it or leave it. Here's another one that I'm not keen on as much anymore. Bullet. Really, I, I used to like Bullet, but then the other night I had just a little bit of that left, and then I had like an Irish whiskey, like a Bushmills, and uh, then this Monkey Shoulder, and I sat them all three, sort of like I, I was just sitting at home on a Saturday night, like listening to records, drinking scotch <laughs> and, and whiskey. I don't and, want to sound pretentious, but... <laughs> this, this is what I was doing. <laughs> uh, well, to be fair, I was listening to like you know, blue oyster cult. And <laughs> that's a good Saturday night, man. No, that's great. <laughs> it was not a super cool Saturday night, but the, uh, the bullet was, was spicy and hot, but it did not have like a lot of flavor. Yeah. It's been a while since I've had bullet. I, I know our, uh, Italian buddy likes the bullet. He does. Yeah. It's uh, been a while since I've had it. I need to get a uh, try the rye again because I I think the rye is probably rated a little bit better. But because from what I remember, I like that. But as far as the bullet bourbon, I mean, it was fine, but it did not have much going for it other than the the whiskey burn. From what I from what I could tell, comparing it to a a Scotch and an Irish whiskey. What's the most expensive bourbon you've ever tried, Josh? Do you have an answer? Uh, you know. I haven't tried Blanton's? very many. I, I haven't tried. No, I've never had Blanton's. Have you? I haven't. No. Um, I mean, I guess I top out at like the middle range ones like Woodford and um, I'm trying to think. I, I don't 
I don't think I've had anything much more pricey than than Woodford and stuff in that range. I think uh, so. I've had. I've never owned a bottle of Eagle Rare, but I've had that and I liked it. Uh, and I think it's probably on the higher end. Uh, I've had a couple bottles of Basil Hayden's and I really like that, but it's not super expensive. It's just no. still like in that Woodford range. Yeah, like a $30 bottle, for, a yeah. $40 bottle, something like that. And then I've had a couple different bottles of like Four Roses and uh, uh, like Elijah Craig, like small batch stuff, which had to have been. 40 to 50 dollar bottles but mm-hmm. i don't think i've ever had anything like over the over that like that range what about you john i had some blanton's once i got it when i got my phd my brother gave it to me nice that was real good that was real really good um i have a list of 30 things to do before i turn 31 and one of the things is try a glass of pappy van winkle so i was kind of curious if either of you ever had that no nope never had it i have to I have to find somebody that has it uh, I know that, um, so my brother was recently, uh, in a wedding party. His, one of his best friends got married in Louisville and, uh, someone bought the groom or maybe the groom bought it for himself and his, his groomsman, a bottle of Pappy. And, nice. and Kev said, you know, it's, it's mostly just the name, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's mostly just, you know, uh, it's still bourbon. It's still bourbon, yeah. <laughs> right, which is like a little bit young and hot compared to like scotches or like the other side of the pond whiskeys. Right. Uh, I mean, from what I've heard, and I've had Weller like 12 year, like that's good stuff. Uh, but I've heard that like Pappy is just like uber, like unless I'm getting my wires crossed, I think it's just like really nice Weller. That's okay. it's just with the air quotes. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't claim I've not had this stuff, but I think that that's the the lineage or something like the, the relationship there. But if someone wants to send us a bottle, we won't turn it down no. <laughs> or send write it. in and tell us what the most expensive liquor is that you have ever had put into your belly. And you have to give us uh, one to two sentences that are, that are uh, as if you were giving tasting, tasting notes for mm. said, for said liquor mouth feel mm. <laughs> strong body hints of dried currants and, <laughs> and, and burnished leather. <laughs> mm. Robin's feathers. It was on the texture. That's right. A, a bit oily in the mouth. Uh, I tasted as if I was chewing on an old shoe. It was fine. Perhaps there had been some peatiness that had been on the the sole of the said shoe. I don't know. <laughs> this is like ancient age plus. Yeah. Preten- pretension. <laughs> pretension cast. Pretension cast. I'm All sorry. Right. I totally got us off. No, no this is perfect. We'll John? move away from liquor now. No, and, um, what do you? No, John. No, John. Did you tell what? us what you're drinking? Oh, I didn't. You can guess. <laughs> we distracted you. Is it? It is. <laughs> it's it's wild, wild turkey 101. <laughs> I'm drinking wild turkey 101. I think I'm going to do this all season. I, like because I feel like if I sat down to drink with Sailor Steve Costigan, we could crack open one of these together, and he would not feel ashamed to drink it with me. It's a it's a man's bourbon. Is that what the reputation is? I just know it's kind of like a redneck bourbon. People look down on it. Or a woman's bourbon, for that matter. Yeah, man. I think it's it's just like uh, for people that know that they want some bourbon. (laughs) Committed to bourbon. Yeah, that's right. Okay, sorry (laughs) to derail you. Oh, let's do one thing.
one thing. <laughs> this is Luke, a, what's your one thing? <laughs> I have I feel like I am uh, a cinder block paced, placed on the, the, the rails of the, the tracks right now. <laughs> so and we were joking about this before the recording, so I'm honestly gonna do it. My one thing is the arrival. Uh, I, I had that actually picked out to be my one thing for this episode, and then I realized that I'd used it for the last episode, but I just watched that movie again, and it still made me well up and have a little bit of tears, and I think it's it's the bee's knees. So for the second episode, I'm going to talk about the arrival, and that's all I'm done talking. Can that be your Wild Turkey 101 for this season? You just that's- keep going with it? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I might, I, might, I might go for it again. I'm going to I'm going to recycle something too. I have been playing a whole lot of Skyrim lately again and it comes at the the tail end of this lapse like I hadn't really played video games for a while. Um but I popped Skyrim into the Xbox the other day and uh started a new character and the character is a mage and playing a mage in Skyrim is very very difficult and it is a slow slow grind and that's if anyone listening is a Skyrim player, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're going to die a whole lot if you play a mage. What's your mage's name? Tila. 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 Uh, she she's a girl. What does she do? Like, what's her like her her field of focus? Well, her main school of magic is destruction magic, which is you know your your fire and your ice and your lightning spells. But uh, she is also. Uh, sort of double majoring at the Winterhold Mages College in, um, sorry, not Conjuration, uh, Illusion spells. And in Skyrim, one of the coolest early level Illusion spells you get is a spell called Fury. And so you cast it on somebody, and if they're of level either 8 or 6 or below, then they start attacking the closest thing next to them. And so in addition to being a mage, I'm playing her like a sneaky thief. And so trying to level up those uh, stealth skills, gotcha. sneaking and, and stuff like that. And so she'll sneak up to uh, some some enemies. She'll throw fury at one of them. Uh, that dude draws a weapon and goes and attacks the next closest person. And then she'll either <laughs> then she'll either summon a uh, flame elemental uh, or she'll rush in with uh, lightning in both hands and just go go to work. Like it's, it. it's, pretty it's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. I usually when I play Skyrim, I play a warrior of some kind um, with a, a sword and shield and and some heavy duty armor. So this is a, a pretty different playthrough, and I'm, I'm liking it a lot. It's it plays sort of like a familiar but different game. Cool. So what Hogwarts house is she in? What Hogwarts house? She she is a Hufflepuff, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> she t- <laughs> she took anything about Harry Potter. <laughs> she took the uh, Pottermore quiz, and unfortunately, <laughs> Hufflepuff. John, what's your one thing? My one thing is a book. It's called Silver Screen Fiend by Patton Oswalt. It's about the time in his life where he was young and in L.A. and he got addicted to going to the movie theater, and it almost ruined his life hmm. and all the movies that he saw during that period. It's really cool. I think if you enjoy reading about like weird movies or if you enjoy Patton's humor you would enjoy the book it's kind of abrupt because it, it's only about four years or five years of his life but uh, it, it's really fun if you if you like him and you like what he has to say about stuff so check it out if you do cool 
His Netflix special that came out, I think, last year is awesome. Have you watched it, John? Or you? No, because it came out right around the time that his wife died. Yes. And I felt like I couldn't watch it. Oh, I don't know. I had this weird like vibe about it. I think it's after his wife died. Maybe. Is it? Did I'm, they release it right after she died? Maybe that's what it is. Um, yeah. But he's he's his jokes are biting. It's pretty good. I, I will it, have to check it out. Yeah, it's put it in your put it in your queue or oh, your list queue. or whatever. By the power of those three things combined, we make one thing. One thing. Ah. Is that your Richard Nixon version of one thing? I am not telling you on my one thing. <laughs> <laughs> now you sound like the king of the slugs or something. I don't know what I did just then. <clears throat> let's me. talk about the bulldog breed. Uh, all right. Let's talk about it. Originally Blue published Blue. in Fight Stories, February of 30. That's 1930. 1930. For all you young whippersnappers out there that might think that it's supposed to be coming out in 2030. That was a hard winner. Uh, 30 was? 1930. Mm. Might have been. Even in Texas. Yeah. Everything was froze. <laughs> Done froze up. <laughs> Post oaks covered in frost. Uh, so this is another story uh, that was published in Fight Stories. Uh, Steve Costigan joint. I'd like to own this one, I think, in the original Fight Stories. So I guess that means that you really like this one. I did dig this one. I, I like doggos. This is a story featuring a good dog, some persnickety Frenchman, and, of course, Sailor Steve Costigan punching people in the snoot. Uh, it has an alternative title, and I don't know, I don't know what the story behind the alternative title is, but the alt title is "You Got to Kill a Bulldog." He kind of says that a few times throughout the story. He does. <laughs> it's true. So, what's happening in this story, Josh? There's some there's some pretty interesting setup here, uh, and I had to read the first half of it over again just to make sure that I understood. But um, we're on the Sea Girl. And the old man is telling about this time that he got into a fight with uh, Tiger Valois or Valois, I guess. I think it's Depends Valois. Depends on if you're American or French. Valou is what I said. Valou? Tiger Valou? But that's probably like I was, a, a Kentucky, <laughs> like, like, uh, like Baloo. I don't know. I was thinking Chris Benoit. Oh, yeah. That's probably he, better. He's yeah, actually yeah. Benoit, right? Like. Oh, is that so, how you pronounce it? O I T. Well, that's how it's spelled. Oh, okay. But, yeah. Uh, so I was I was thinking the V. It's Tiger V A L O I S, and I thought the O I S was a wa sound, but I have no French whatsoever. Is, Yet again, we butchered the French. Right. A throwback to previous episodes. Apologies to France. <laughs> do, they, do you think they use the Chromecast in the French classes across the United States to to show people how not to speak French? <laughs> Probably. L- listen to these idiots. <laughs> uh, okay, so how how do you pronounce it, John? You're running the show. Uh, I'm going to go with Valois. Okay, and so Tiger Valois is the heavyweight champion of the French Navy. And the old man, the captain of the Sea Grill, got into a fight with him, and Val- Valois knocked the crap out of him and knocked him out. Apparently, they don't get along because the Welsh and the French are not supposed to be friends. I guess that's true. And so, <laughs> he's a Welshman. Uh, he hated a Frenchman like he hated a snake. Now he turned on me. If you was any part of a man, you big Nick Ham, he said bitterly, you wouldn't stand around and let a blankety-blank French so on and so forth lay out your captain. Oh, yeah. I know you wasn't there. 
But if you'll fight him and he, Sailor Steve's not having any of it. He doesn't have any any dog in this fight at this point. Good pun. Uh, he goes on to say that you know if it's you make it sound easy why don't you just pair me up with somebody like Dempsey so let's talk about that Jack Dempsey that's who we're referring to here right yeah that's who we're talking about and uh, back in the first episode of the season uh, both Mark and Chris talk about Dempsey being one of Howard's favorite uh, boxers right like he was a boxing celebrity so this is a time in uh, U.S. history or maybe not even U.S. history, but sports history when boxing was like the sport and everyone liked it and everyone paid attention to it. And uh, Jack Dempsey is one of these characters that uh, seems like he should be a fictional character, right? Um, <laughs> from my research, uh, he was born in uh, 1895, lived until 1983, so pretty recently. Um, and he stood, let's see, well, let's, let's talk about his career. It lasted from 1914 to 1927, and he was the world heavyweight champion from 1919 to 1926. He, uh, stood six foot one. Uh, his reach was 77 inches and I thought I'd noted his weight, but I, I must not have. But it must have been right around 195 because we learn in the story that Costigan weighs 195 and his measurements are approximately Dempsey. But he, he's just kind of an interesting American character. He he wasn't always a boxer. He sort of started out in different careers, it sounded like, but then would make his living going into bars in the Wild West. And like, what would he proclaim? Uh, he'd say, I can't sing and I can't dance, but I can lick any SOB in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then he would do that. He would just box people. And yeah. so he had a bunch of unprofessional amateur matches for a long time. And he wasn't Jack Dempsey then, if I remember his biography correctly. Uh, he fought under a different name, but then substituted for his brother, sort of, illegal, not illegally, but on the, on the shady end of the spectrum in a fight and started his professional boxing career kind of that way, filling in for his brother. That's cool. I, I did not know any any of this. You guys just dropped a bunch of information. I didn't. I didn't look up to Dempsey. I didn't or didn't look him up. I didn't go down the rabbit hole. Well, it, he he seems like you know uh, one of these Iron Men that Howard would have really liked. He his his fighting style was not one that was uh, you know uh, that involved a lot of shucking and jiving. Uh, he didn't really move his feet all that much he stood, he up and stood there it. and took punches and gave it gave him right back cool he was just a cool guy and i can see why howard liked him <clears throat> but in this story we're getting the idea that dempsey as great as he was is sort of a, a shadow in comparison to tiger Valoy. he's not this guy tiger is is the real deal he's a great fighter and sailor steve's just a ham and egger he says how can i compete with this guy why would you expect this of me to his captain which he doesn't take very well. Well, they get into a little bit of a, a scuffle here on the on the ship, and uh, <laughs> the captain inadvertently gives uh, uh, a brand new character kind of a kick in the in the side. Right? We've got Mike the Bulldog. Mike is a Dublin gentleman. He's a he's a bulldog of some renown on the Sea Girl. It sounds like he's Sailor Steve's dog, and this captain, the old man, he just kind of goes over and he swift kicks him to show his anger at Steve for not going out and fighting tiger for him. 
And this does not really go over well. It doesn't go the way he would expect it, I don't think. Nope. Mike immediately attaches himself to the old man's leg and is chewing him up. And so they have to get Mike off of him. Sailor Steve is is angry at both of them. And the captain says, that dog's off this boat. He's no, He's not sailing with us anymore. And Steve says, if he goes, I go. At the next port, I'm getting off the ship. Kind of trying to call the captain's bluff. But the captain is a stubborn man. And at this point, Sailor Steve is going to get off the boat with his dog. Right, Luke? Yeah, they're two, uh, two manly men. They're not going to admit that their emotions got the better of them. The captain's just like, just bound to let it play out. And Steve's not going to let his dog just get kicked off. So he's going to go with him. So the next port of call, trudge, trudge, trudge. We get Steve and Mike roaming the streets, right? Now, I know that I couldn't come back, and it hit me hard. The sea girl is the only thing I'm champion of. And as I went ashore, I heard the sound of Mushy Hanson and Bill O'Brien trying to decide which should succeed to my place of honor. Well, maybe some will say I should have sent Mike ashore and stayed on. But to my mind, a man that won't stand by his dog is lower down than one which won't stand by his own fellow man. (laughs) A noble sentiment, if there ever ever was one. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Can you tell me a little bit more about Mike? Like, what kind of dog are we talking about here, Josh? Well, Mike is a bulldog, as as we know. It's, he he is. Well, the the title of the story makes you think that this is all about Mike, right? But really, Mike and and Steve have a lot in common. Um, Mike uh, was uh, a few years ago just kind of wandering aimlessly around the uh, the wharfs of Dublin. Uh, making a living fighting everything that he met either on two legs or four. So is that, <laughs> you know, it should remind you of somebody. Um, and so uh, Steve adopts him and uh, gives him the name of, of his brother, Mike, uh, names him after Iron Mike Costigan and uh, just brings him along with him. So he is, Mike is a uh, gentleman. He's <laughs> he's dignified. He's classy, but he's got a temper now, and he likes to be scratched behind the ear. That's right. Yeah, he likes to have his ears pulled. <laughs> Mike's a good dog. But now they're off the Sea Girl, and Mike and Steve are trying to, I guess, find a spot in the world. They don't really have anywhere to go. They don't have a home to go to or anything now. So they're just wandering around. Where are we wandering around at? Where are we at in this story? Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Are we? Yes. Whoa. Yeah, there's one mention of that. Yeah, w- the next port of call was Hong Kong, and that's where he gets off. So we're wandering I love, around. Real, real quick, I love that this is like an Eastern flavor throughout. Like, I mean, just a couple stories that we've that we've covered here. That he's like, he's the boxer of the Pacific, like out into the the wildness of that side of the ocean. And he's not like off the coast of Ireland or Scotland mm. or like something like that. It's it's the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. That's pretty cool. It's a good setting for boxing tales, I think. So he's kind of wandering around looking for a friendly face, and they find a man named Tom Roche. Roche? How do we want to say that? I said Roach. Roach. I, I don't know so if that's Tom right. Tom Roach is a fighting engineer that Steve once knocked out in Liverpool, England. And so they just start drinking. They go around town getting whatever wild turkey or rum they can get and filling their bellies with it. And they... They somehow end up in a highbrow establishment, a French joint, kind of more highbrow if you get me. A lot of swell-looking fellows in there was in there drinking, and the bartenders and waiters all French scowled at Mike the Bulldog but said nothing. 
And Steve's trying to tell Tom all about what's been going on when this tall, elegant young man with a dress suit, a cane, and gloves started to stroll by their table. And he sort of walked up, and he just takes his cane, and he flat-out wallops Mike the Bulldog in the head. What the hell, man? This dog right. is getting whopped on. Yeah. Uh, he hits him hard enough to kind of knock him out or daze him temporarily, right? And Yeah, there's a big gash on his head. And then just when he comes to, Steve is trying to keep Mike from ripping this guy apart. And uh, the Frenchman is uh, just sort of laughing and rolling his eyes at this whole situation, right? Like he obviously has some cojones to uh, just walk up to Costigan and, and smash his dog in the head. What's the well, Frenchman? He pays for oh. it pretty quick. What do we call the Frenchman? He has some very generic name, right? Like, that's the big mystery throughout the story. He's just like Pierre. Francois. 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 Yeah. Francois right. walks up and hit Mike, and he gets hit back. Steve lays him out with the hit to the chin, and things get dicey here for a second. Everybody else that's French in this French bar runs over, but Tom Roach has a gun that he pulls, <laughs> and he kind of wards everybody off. And you get the feeling that, this is an interesting life that these fellows lead. So the Frenchman says something in, in French, not in English. And uh, Tom says, hey, Steve, this game is challenging you to a duel. What about? And so all Steve can think of is uh, this German duelist that he used to know, right? And he, he's thinking this guy is a swordsman. He knows how to fight with a weapon. I've got no chance here. And he's about to say, absolutely not. When Tom says, you're, you're the, the challenged party, so you can pick the weapons. And that's, that's when a gleam comes across uh, Sailor Steve Costigan's face, right? He knows what weapons he's going to pick. my fists, right? Yeah. Got some gloves. Boxing gloves. Which he thinks will sort of scare the Frenchman, Francois, a little bit. But I guess we start to get some shades of Conan here. We've got a guy with panthery, tigery eyes that are black that kind of gleam over and are, are really excited at the prospect of strapping on the gloves and, and hitting the mat. Mm -hmm. I think here Costigan is kind of falling into this trap of judging a book by its cover, right? Like he's looking at this, this guy who's presented to us as a kind of a dandy and thinking, Oh, he's a girly man. I'm going to just wear him out with my fists. Um, and is not expecting, uh, Francois to respond in, with any kind of, resistance to this right like he doesn't expect francois to be able to fight him no he's a european dandy that fights with metal or guns or what have you there's no way he's good with his fists a gleam in the frenchman's eye says otherwise though that's oh, right he is he has underestimated his his competitor so where are we going to go have our fight at luke uh it's is it the napoleon club it is it's, the a, napoleon it's club. a pretty sweet name for this for this french uh, uh, like under the table, uh, whiskey drinking boxing club. And does Steve think that it's weird that this guy wants to fight him? Like he hasn't heard of him. Yeah. Well, I mean, he in Steve's mind, he has a reputation, right? He's he's uh, the toughest guy on the toughest ship uh, out here in these Asian waters, and he was the champion of the Sea Girl, and everybody ought to know who he is. Um, <laughs> which is kind of an inflated view of yeah. things, right? <laughs> yeah. But it also is, it, it sort of brings him down to think about this because he realizes he's not 
the champion of the sea girl anymore. He's just Sailor Steve, guy that punches things. And he starts wondering, like, or I guess all this time he's been wondering, is Mushy Hansen the new champion? Is it uh, somebody else, Bill O'Brien? Um, yeah, he's he's getting a little emotional. And Mike knows it. Mike can sense his owners, his friends, really, sort of downtrodden spirit. Wouldn't you agree, Luke? Yeah, yeah. He's. Uh, I, I like that Mike is always there for for his for his buddy uh you know and at any point outside of the ring if if steve's in a fight mike is is right there gonna latch on and then you know we see that mike is he's a bit more sophisticated he realizes when something's got to come into the ring but he's he's attuned to to steve's you know you feelings here right Mm -hmm. have you ever experienced this sort of connection with a dog either of you yeah oh yeah absolutely um we had a dog um, who was fiercely loyal uh, when I was in maybe middle school and my, my brother was even smaller. And uh, this dog would, when we would ride bikes, uh, follow right along with us. And if any other dogs wandered up or chased us or barked at us, she would like attack him. She would, she would <laughs> get him off of us. And uh, yeah, so I, I, it's a little different because, you know, it's not like she was emoting or uh, picking up on our fear or anxiety, but she saw situations that were uh, unfavorable and seemed aggressive toward us, and she she corrected that. So it was pretty right. awesome. What was this dog's name? This dog's name was Brandy. Brandy? That's yeah. a good dog. That is a good dog name. <laughs> How about you, Luke? Uh, yeah, you know... Uh, my family, we just recently got a dog, like right around uh, Thanksgiving, and so we've got a a, cat, uh, a hound dog. He's about two years old. His name's Doc, and Doc is a he's kind of a little puppy at this point. But I I would say like since we've gotten through the holidays, like he is certainly like tuned in to the family, and between me and my my little guy and my wife, like he's he's very lovey with us, and you can tell like he's just. When like my my son gets all tantrumy, like a two year old is wont to do, Doc gets all riled up too. You can tell, like he <laughs> he is synced up with the emotions of the house, and so it's kind of cool to see, you know, an animal that can be, uh, uh, you know, on the same wavelength as everybody else in the house, like in the family. So it's 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 something that I'm beginning to see more. Like when I was a kid, we had a chow that. Uh, that was a family dog, but at the same time, like he was an outside dog and he wasn't necessarily uh tight family. And, and, and so I, while I had have, have those associations of having a dog growing up at the same time, I don't necessarily recollect a really strong connection, like with, with having that, that critter. So has doc imprinted mostly on, on your son or I would say probably more with me just because I'm oh. kind of, I'm the boss as far as like morning walks and getting out and about that kind of thing. Uh, but, but certainly everybody in the house, he's, he's become like, he's taken ownership of the house and, and of us certainly. So you kind of get where Mike and Steve are coming from and all this. Oh yeah, certainly. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. Like I'm looking forward to having a long relationship with a puppy, you know, that, that turns into, <laughs> something where that dog really second nature is like 
picking up on things. And I mean, you and your family are the same way, right, John? You've got a, a dog that you've had for quite some time. Yeah, we have Lucy. Lucy's been our dog for a few years now. We got her in Kentucky before uh, we moved out here to Nebraska. And yeah, definitely is a big part of our family. Somebody that you, uh, what's that phrase that people throw around online a lot now that you Al- want alternative facts. No, <laughs> you want a friend or people to look at you the way your dog looks at you. Uh-huh. Like you, uh-huh. you, you want that kind of friendship in the world. And yeah, Lucy is just, she's, an amazing creature. Yeah, it, it's it's impressive how much dogs can really become a part of your life if you let them. And growing up, my dad had a dog named Buddy, an English pointer that was his hunting dog. He took pheasant and quail hunting and all kinds of stuff. And it, it killed my dad when Buddy died. I mean, just that bond that you see develop between people and their dog. It's really heart touching, I guess. It's, yeah. it's amazing to see what happens with, with an animal and a human. Well, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, so we can talk about it. Maybe, maybe this is the best point, John, with uh, the article that you sent out to, to Josh and I about why people and dogs get along so well together. Uh, like that, it, there's a lot of truth to how dogs and, you know, their family units, you know, their pack mentality really syncs up with us. Yeah. So yeah. dogs are descended from wolves, right? And wolves are social. Uh, they have a pecking order in their pack. Uh, there's usually an alpha, right? And then uh, sort of a, an, uh, an order of ascension almost. Right. Um, they're territorial. They cooperate with each other. Uh, they greet one another, uh, communicate, you know, non-verbally with uh, facial expressions, but also verbally with uh, howls and barks. Um, and so it's almost like, you know, when when humans um, tamed wolves and, and domesticated dogs, those dogs were pre-adapted to sort of fit within a human society or, or within a human family. I think, yeah, I think that's a really cool way of thinking about it. That article I sent around, it, it was filled with a lot. And maybe we'll put it in the show notes. Oh, uh, we should. Yeah. Yeah, it it was filled with a lot of interesting ideas and information that I had never thought about in terms of my relationship with my dog, but the this human canine bond that that you can read about online about there's this positive feedback loop that we create with each other where staring into their eyes and them staring back into us activates the same receptors that a mother and an infant activate, so you get this oxycotton release in your bloodstream. And you feel happy when you look at your dog and your dog also feels happy when it looks at you and it creates this positive feedback loop where you're like, you're great. No, you're great. I love you. No, I love you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just no, think it's... that's really interesting. Evolutionarily speaking, that that we hijack that with them and they hijack that with us where they I, I don't know. I can't imagine it was a conscious effort or anything, but took advantage of our 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 brains desire to love things and became a part of our families over a long period of time. And there were other things that dogs provided, right? Some measure of security, some, right. Some uh, garbage disposal. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's uh, the article says hot water bottles. So they keep you warm at night. If you snuggle up with them. I mean, there's, they're pack animals in the, the sense of they're carrying stuff for us. And that traditional, like hook them up to a sled. Like Mm -hmm. that's something that's, there's a long history of that. Like, devout 
helper outers and and you know and they understand gaze and pointing which right. is something that not even chimpanzees can do like you can't point with a chimpanzee you can't point to the food and it follows your point but a dog i can point for lucy and say like there's your toy there's your bone right and she knows where i'm pointing and she goes over to it yeah that's so we're doing a little bit of training with doc with our guy right now and we're just like this second week of, of doggy school of obedience school <laughs> we we have discussed uh you know stay and like a hand motion that's gonna say hey lock it down sit tight and they're you know they're wanting us to work on things like uh a long a long down where the dog stays you know for 30 minutes you try to keep the dog in a laying position and so i think it's interesting that you can have this kind of relationship and it's also like this this hierarchy this dominance is very much a family unit mm-hmm. you know it's it's interesting and the article goes into this really cool like co-evolutionary uh pressure between dogs and humans and uh puts forth this notion that uh dogs sort of helped the uh uh helped homo sapiens along the evolutionary pathway and in turn humans helped dogs out because they provide food and protection and that kind of thing so uh if you're a a dog owner and you're into this kind of thing you should definitely check out this article mutualism isn't that what we would call it josh i think so yeah it's definitely a mutualism (laughs) and uh, Steve and Mike enjoy a mutualism much like we described. They, they love each other. There's, there's definitely an emotional bond between this crafty bulldog and Steve Costigan. And Steve is going to make sure that he avenges this affront that happened to his bulldog. They're at the Napoleon club and things look a little weird. Like they walk in and clearly everybody in this place knows who Francois is. They're clapping for him. It's a fancy place. Steve is like, I don't really know what's happening here. I don't. Is the referee going to be French? I don't speak French. How am I going to know the count? And Tom is trying to assuage him and say, like, I speak French. I'll sort everything out. But, but clearly, Steve is a little worried at this point about what he's got himself into, even though he wants to to avenge Mike in this affront to him. And so he, uh, Steve is now looking at, um, Francois sort of measuring him up. Right. And he notices, Hey, this guy's a little bit taller than me. He looks like he outweighs me by a little bit. His muscles are actually pretty toned. He looks fast. He looks strong. He's bigger than me even like they, they sort of announce the weights and, and he is, he's bigger and he has a little bit of of bulk on Steve. Yeah. He outweighs him by 15 pounds. A good six, one and a half. He stood or an inch and a half taller than me, a powerful neck sloped into broad, flexible shoulders, a limber steel body tapered to a girlishly slender waist. His legs was slim, strong and shapely with narrow feet that looked speedy and sure. His arms was long, thick, but perfectly molded. I tell you this Francois looked like a champion that any man I'd seen more like a champion than any man I'd seen since I saw Dempsey last. He's so a, again, we get this comparison to Dempsey. He's a paragon of pugilism. It yes. seems if I was, if I was a man that was keen on alliterations, purely you are keen on alliterations, I'm keen on whiskey. I'll be honest. <laughs> Can I have a little bit more? Get more. I'm getting the buzz. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
They get an English ref. They're going to fight by Queensberry rules. What does that mean? Correct. Those yeah, are like I, I the official know. proper rules. I think we talked about it in the first episode. Uh, I think like in the in the boxing primer. Uh, but that's like the the official sort of by the book rules for it. I don't know what it all entails, but there's like weights for gloves and all that kind of shit. Uh, but I do recall at least in this story, this is he's he's an English he's a, he's an English ref, right? He's like outside of the ring as opposed to being up in it like an American would be, or apparent like the American. Variant. No, he stays in American fashion, oh, okay. even though he is English. Okay, but but that that contrast is uh is noted by Steve for sure. Uh. Yeah, we I think we did talk about the Queensberry rules. They were set forth by the the Marquis of Queensberry. Um and so what we get from the story is that there are gonna be three minute rounds, uh one minute rest, uh to a finish if it takes all night. So there's no time limit. It's not twelve rounds, it's not fifteen rounds, it's we're gonna have a winner here tonight. Um <laughs> I made a list, I, I copied a list of the, the rules and we don't have to read all of them. Uh but the first few, I guess, um, are worth talking about. The size of the ring, it's got to be a 24-foot ring or as near as uh, practicable. Um, no wrestling, right? No no hugging. Uh, you can't just, like, try and wrap up your opponent. No knees to the scrote. That's in there, definitely. Um, <laughs> you've got 10 seconds to get up. Uh, if you're hung in the ropes, you're, you're counted as being down. Uh your second can't come in during the fight, that kind of thing. <laughs> no tag teams. No tag teams, yeah. While <laughs> no, the ref's not looking, no can't chairs. hit with a chair. <laughs> that, that would be the, uh, the the Vince McMahon, the Marquise of McMahon rules. We, we got Queensberry rules. We're going to get going with the fight here. And I, I don't want us to read like the fight because I feel like if you're following this season and you read anything – you should always read the fight section of these stories because it's just it's tense, it's taut, it's it's hard to read. You feel the pain that Sailor Steve reads, and you kind of wonder if Rocky Balboa is inspired by Sailor Steve Costigan. Oh man, at certain points there's there's a a scene in this that absolutely reminds me of a scene in Rocky. Can we talk more about that? Tell me more about that, Josh. Well, there's a scene in the first Rocky where uh, Apollo has just punched Rocky's face until he can't open his eyes, right? And so uh, between rounds later in the match, Rocky says to Mickey, Hey, yo, you got to cut me. You got to cut me, Mick. You know that <laughs> yeah, scene? Yeah, yeah, uh, And I always wondered about what was happening because you don't actually see where the cut, the incision is being made. But I guess... In, in Rocky, he's getting cut above his eye to sort of alleviate the the pressure of the swelling. So uh, a little bit of blood is uh, removed, and that helps the swelling go down, I guess. Um, and so there's a scene just like that here, right, where Costigan's eyes later in the fight are just swollen shut from the millions of punches he's taken to the, the right to the face. The gist of it here is that we're talking about two very different boxers. And if Chris Gruber is listening and he wants to chime in on this, we see two very distinct fight styles here. And Steve sort of, Steve sort of narrates this for us. He talks about the fact that he's a slugger and that he's fighting a puncher or a boxer puncher who has a, a style that's distinct in his own. Uh, I was reading about this online. I'm, I'm getting more and more interested in boxing. So I wanted to know what these terms meant. 
So a puncher like Tiger Valoy, he has really good hand speed. He's got a good jab, which we are introduced to multiple times, this left jab that Steve receives in his bread times. And they're good at counterpunching. They're also better at defense than a normal slugger, which is what Steve is. But they're strong like like Steve and these sluggers are. Some some people argue that these are folks that don't match up well with folks like Steve Costigan. They're not good against this slugger mentality, somebody that doesn't go down. And the, there was a list of people I read on Wikipedia that are listed as punchers. And it included some people like Oscar De La Hoya and Sugar Ray Leonard and Manny Pacquiao, who's sort of normally fairly well known nowadays. So these are people that they're good at getting in there and they're like, pop, 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 pop. they get you a few times and they've got a good jab, but all it takes is one good right to the chin and they might end up down. Okay. And luckily that's what Steve is. He's a slugger. And the quote I read said, a slugger like Steve Costigan represents everything that's brutal about boxing. They lack finesse, they lack mobility, but they make up for it with pure power. They tend to ignore combo punches like we see from the puncher. And some famous examples are George Foreman and Sonny Liston and world champion Jim Jeffries. And Sailor Steve Costigan falls into this category as well. These are people that they're going to punch and punch and there's going to be one good lick that they get in until they win. So Steve is hoping to to implement this style against the puncher that Tiger Veloy is. And it takes a long time. We're, we go through 11 rounds, 10 rounds in this story. At least. And Steve absorbs an, a, an insane amount of punishment. But he keeps thinking about Mike during all of this. Not only that he's fighting for Mike. But what is it about Mike? Like, what are some stories about Mike that he thinks of, Josh? Well, uh, during one scene toward the the latter half or the latter third or so of the fight, he is reminded of this time when Mike, uh, I guess they were in Alaska, and uh, uh, Costigan was sort of laid up with an injury and he couldn't get out to help Mike. Uh, and so all he could do is watch out the window while this wolfhound, uh, who's much bigger and faster then Mike just uh, harassed and attacked Mike over and over and over repeatedly. Right. And so uh, as he watched, he noticed that even though Mike was taking some, some wounds and sustaining some pretty heavy damage, he wasn't giving up. And he makes this observation that we've heard him uh, or, or seen him make throughout the story. And that is the only way you can lick a bulldog is to kill him. And so, uh, Mike keeps getting up, keeps going after the the larger, faster wolfhound, and eventually finds an opening and uh, tears out the throat of this attacking wolfhound. It's a pretty epic scene, it sounds like, this fight between Mike and, and this wolfhound. I, and it, it does echo a lot of what we're seeing here in this fight between Tiger and Sailor Steve. With, with all that's going on, Steve is just, I mean, he's absorbed a lot of damage. Tom keeps trying to tell him, who he's actually fighting in all of this right luke yeah yeah he's <laughs> he has to keep him centered and so after the cut when uh when steve comes up he can finally sort of see enough of of Valoy in front of him to, to try to keep 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 slugging it out and so he's thinking about his bulldog and he's able 
to at one point, like he sort of gets a moment of clarity. And he's like, oh, I haven't been doing half bad here, right? Like he's actually covered the guy in a number of different welts. He's landing them. And this guy, Valoy, he's he's not pretty boy Valoy, but he doesn't like to <laughs> he doesn't like to get he doesn't like to get bruised up, right? He's he's he thinks he's a surgeon, but but Steve is he's the wrecking crew. And so uh <laughs> It's clear that the match has has tipped over to Steve's favor. Like he's just weathered it to the point where this guy is losing steam. Right? He's gaining ground. Yeah, we we head into this final round, and Steve has asked for his eye to be lanced to relieve that pressure, like Josh talked about, and he can't get up. the The gong sounds, but but he can't stand. And he says, "Help me up, Tom Roche, you big bog trotter." If you throw in that towel, I'll brain you with the water bottle. <laughs> and he gets up, he shakes his head, and he, he gets into the ring. He gets his bearings. I walk forward with a funny, stiff, mechanical step toward Francois, who got up slow with a look on his face like he'd rather be somewhere else. <laughs> he cut me to pieces, knocked me down time and time again. But here I was, coming back for more. The bulldog instinct is hard to fight. It ain't exactly courage, and it ain't exactly bloodlust. It's the bulldog breed. That's all he has to say about it. And what does that mean? Like, what's a bulldog? What What does that mean? Well, I, I, I guess. I mean, from what I can tell, uh, bulldogs were bred to actually fight bulls, right? There, Which there's makes sense with the name, right? Yeah, <laughs> makes pretty self explanatory. But they uh, took part in this this practice called bull baiting, and that is putting wagers on a dog. Uh, against a bull. And so these bulldogs would go after a bull and try and get it by the nose, which is a really sensitive area on a, on a bull's body and uh, try and bring it down to the ground. And so bulldogs, even though they're not the, the largest dogs in terms of, of height, they are dense and strong and muscular with a great big jaw, right? So they're they're capable of bringing down much bigger, stronger opponents than they are. So this is an English thing. These are English bulldogs, which I assume is what Mike has to be breed-wise, that were used in bull baiting where an 80- or 100-pound dog brings down a two-ton or half-a-ton bull by the nose, which is just a really impressive feat. Yeah. So I, Steve is, is sort of speaking towards that fighting spirit. Which is part of the bulldog breed, but also part of his his Irish heritage. He points that out a few times in the story. He talks about the Battle of Binberg. Is that how? Yeah, Binberg. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. He, he talks about Binberg, which is a 1646 battle between the Irish and some Scots English settlers, where the Scotch English team. Had about 6,000 people. They outnumbered the Irish by 1,000 who had about 5,000 folks. And the Irish won this battle with about 300 casualties to the 3,000 that the English Scotch suffered. So this is a lot about this spirit that's in him, not only from a bulldog but from his Irish heritage. We had a commenter on Facebook, right, Josh, that talked about this? That's right, yeah. Our friend Brad Ellison uh commented on Facebook and said, this is the dark horse candidate for the best story REH ever wrote. It's a hundred percent about the things he believed in the most, the unbreakable bond of love between a man and his dog, the fighting pride of the Irish race 
and the indomitable warrior spirit that will never, ever stop fighting, even when, especially when, the fight is hopeless. Brad put all of that way more eloquently than I could have ever put it. And Steve puts it really eloquently because he comes back out for this 11th round and he knows, all right, in his gut that he's going to win this now. Tiger Valoy, who he doesn't know is Tiger Valoy yet, right. is, is ready to be picked. He's a peach that's ripened and is ready to come off the tree. And he goes <laughs> out there and finishes him off. He puts it, puts him down. Yeah, so this is this the 11th round or the 12th round? 11th or 12th, he's, it, you know, it's the end of the round. 11th <laughs> is more poetic, right? 11th hour, 11th round. Anyway. That's right. There, there's a wonderful, dramatic sort of uh, 10 count, right? When uh, uh, Kosigan is on the mat and he's he's just, he wants to quit, but he can't because he hears Mike's bark and he knows he can't give up. And so he, he just gives up and uh, he, he notices... Like everything is really swimmy. Uh, he notices Francois's face, wide and desperate. Uh, the pace had told them blows I'd landed from time to time. Under the heart had sapped his strength. He'd punched himself out on me. But more than anything else, the knowledge that he was up against the old bulldog breed licked him. I drove my right smash into his face, and his head went back like it was on hinges, and the blood spattered. He swung his right to my head, and it was so weak I laughed, blowing out a haze of blood. I ran my <laughs> left to his ribs. And as he bent forward, I crashed my right to his jaw. He dropped and crouching there on the canvas, half supporting on himself on his hands, he was counted out. I reeled across the ring and collapsed with my arms around Mike, who was whining deep in his throat and trying to lick my face off. And this he, is where you hear the triumphant music play. This is like Rocky Four. Ivan Drago, <laughs> America, and that is that is where the drama is at its height. <laughs> in, so in the so rock, I shake my head. <laughs> Steve and Mike are having a uh, a reunion. Mike doesn't, or Steve doesn't last long. He kind of passes out from all of the punishment that he's taken. Yeah, and what's the first thing he feels when he comes to Josh? Uh, well, he he hears somebody say. Uh, I think he's coming too. Can you open your eyes? And when he when he uh, opens his eyes, he sees all of his old buddies from the Sea Girl. Hey, what are you doing? Like uh, it's Mushy Hanson, it's Bill O'Brien, it's <laughs> Olaf Larson, it, all these cool people. The old man is there. Oh my gosh! And they're all so excited to see him. And why? <laughs> well, uh, Steve doesn't know it, even though we do. Uh, the guy he just fought. Uh, 11 hard rounds with was the champion of the French Navy, Tiger Valois himself. What? That's insane. I never saw that coming. And the old man, <laughs> the old man uh, thinks that it's, it must be because uh, Steve wanted to get uh, the old man's honor, right? Like he, he fought this guy to get vengeance for the old man. And even when he finds out that's not the case, that he had no clue who he was fighting, he's like, I don't, I don't care. That's great. You beat him up. That's all I wanted. That's what I want, Rocky. <laughs> yeah, bum. Yeah, bum. <laughs> yeah, bum. You, you knocked him down. That's all I can. We should do a whole episode like Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you whipped Tiger Valoy, heavyweight champion of the French fleet, Steve. You ought to have known how he wears dude clothes and struts amongst the swells when on shore leaves. I wouldn't tell you who he was for fear you wouldn't fight him. And I was afraid I'd discourage you if I told you at first and later you wouldn't give me a chance. So, 
the old man and the the crew they wanted to see the whole fight, but they didn't find out in time enough to see only but the last three rounds of the fight, and they was worth the money. You outclassed him every way except guts. You was outclassed every way except guts. You was licked to a frazzle, but he couldn't take you to realize it. And I laid a better two, and what it amounts to here is that the old man won a bunch of money off the of Steve. <laughs> he right. him half of it. You, the sea girl ain't fit to sail until you're plum able and fit. And Mike is invited back. He's a blooming bow, bow-legged angel, says the old man. Did did the end, the last lines here, before you do, I said, drink to the boy who stands for everything them aforesaid ships and sailors stand for. Mike of Dublin, an honest gentleman and born mascot of all fighting men. Did that remind you guys of anything? Uh, patches? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, patches for sure. But I was thinking of a Conan story, right? Beyond the Black River. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. so there's a character with a dog in that story. And at the end, they raise a glass to the uh, the guy's shade and to the hound's shade, right? Uh, I forgot. Sure, I that's forgot. Sure. That's kind of, that's the final note, right? Yeah. the The last note is uh, they're in that tavern or bar or whatever, drinking and talking about how barbarism always has to triumph. But one thing that they do is raise a toast to the the shade of the brave warrior and the dog. So why does why does Howard like dogs so much? That's that's a good question. Which uh, to which I have a counter question. You said patches. Okay. Who is patches? Patches is is Reh's dog. It's the one that when we went to the to the big conference, we got to see his grave and hang around it for a little while. But uh, that's cool. Where was it? Where was it at? It's at Robert E. Howard Days. Um, and so from what we understood, was there a marker there? There was. There was a little, uh, I guess, limestone stone that said Patches on top of it. Yeah. So is yeah. that the location of the actual burial burial point? Of the it's dog, yes, yeah. okay. to be right around there. Okay, yeah, because the okay, that's what that's what I was wondering if it was like a known gravesite. I think they're pretty sure, but it's not a hundred percent. But if you're standing at the back door of the Howard House, correct me if I'm wrong, John, because uh, it's <laughs> it's been a little while. But if you're standing, if you come out the back door and turn left, it's kind of over uh, to the left around a big tree, like a big yep. maybe a live oak or something. Post out. Yeah. Yeah. There's this rock says patches right underneath it. And it's where they best estimate that they buried the dog. Yeah. So Howard had patches for approximately about 15 years or something, right? Yeah. It was, it was a good dog. Yeah. It was a a long lived little dog. And so from what I understand, we found an essay by Patrice Lunet who uh, says that, this story came out and these Costigan stories sort of started coming out around about the time that Patches died. And the idea put forth by Patrice Lunet and, and other Howard scholars is that Mike the Bulldog is kind of the literary resurrection of Patches. Right, John? That's what uh, Lunet says. And in reading this, you can't help but feel that that living connection to a dog that that he had. Uh, it just seems like like Howard got dogs. I don't know. I it, it, that was a thing in his life was dogs and this this unwavering bond between man and animal that we see here with Steve and and Mike 
was something that was a big part of his life, and I think he wanted to write about it. It seems it's interesting to me, though, and this is rightly pointed out in Linnae's uh, essay that that and DeCamp realized it too. I guess in the materials that that Linnae references or that Linnae references that Howard was was oddly quiet about his writings of his own personal pet uh, throughout much of his his correspondence with people like you know it made it there's these writings about dogs that make their way into stories but prior to that it's not like he was writing about patches he's strangely silent on the issue i think that that's a thing that happens to a lot of folks i remember when my i mentioned before my dad had this dog named buddy and my dad raised this dog from a puppy all the way to adulthood he taught him everything and this was this dog that it meant everything to my dad i mean he was an outside dog, but he was a hunting dog. Um, he got heartworms at one point, and he got to come inside, and my dad nursed him back to health. And they just had this this weird connection. And when he died, it was there was nothing said about it. There was no big speech about everything. We buried him. I made this like headstone for him, and it meant a lot to my dad. But I feel like... Everything I've read about Howard and Patches reminds me of my dad and this dog. Like they loved each other, and there was this huge connection between them. But they couldn't enunciate it. They couldn't talk about it. One's a dog, because, <laughs> so we can't talk. But but my dad emotionally couldn't speak to what he felt with this dog. And I feel like Howard was the same way. Emotionally, he wasn't ready to talk about what Patches meant to him. And how this was a dog that was more important than some people to him. And he didn't write about it very much. It was something that he felt in his heart and he put into his work. Rather than writing letters to Tevis Clyde Smith and others about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And Patrice in this essay says something that that is similar to that. Um, uh, Quote, thus Patch and his death provides us with what seems to be a particularly interesting, if difficult, way of investigating Howard's life. The reemergence of a fictional dog, as opposed to the so-called non-existence of the real one, invites one to pursue similar researches, notably the facts that Howard's heroes never mention their parents, or even having parents, and that they are exiles, or that, in Howard's more realistic fiction, his characters are always orphans or have always had a harsh childhood. They're loners, they're adventurers, they're ramblers. Yeah. They're they're by they're they're solo, right? Yeah. And when dogs show up, there there's a strong connection. And we mentioned uh Beyond the Black River earlier, the the character's name was Balthus, right? With the dog. Um and that's one of the Conan stories that we get mostly from the perspective of a another character, and that's Balthus and his dog, uh Slasher. And they right. have a, a really tight uh, connection a really uh, close relationship this isn't this isn't fully formed but it, it's just occurring to me too i mean that you so i was just sort of making connections to to london's like call of the wild like mm-hmm. i think there's probably something that could be said for howard's kinship and his association with with dogs and, and a handful of his writings and mainly these sailor stories uh with with like the tie to barbarism mm-hmm. and wildness there. Like there's a kinship and a comrade camaraderie that you can have 
that is to some degree wild or barbaric. Like he, it's that it's that association with with the more primitive and the more uh, 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 uncivilized and wild things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree with that, but I also feel like. For him, a dog in the relationship that he could build with it is a personal choice. It's not this forced familial relationship he has with his dad and his mom. Right. He he can build that with his dog. He's in control of it more than he is with a familial relationship. Yeah, you can choose you can choose your friends, right? Like you get that and and, and in the case of a dog like that that, that that canine sort of recognition of of wild nobility or whatever sure. we want to say there, like that's a like great way of saying it. It's it's some recognition of of if not superiority, at least like uh, a, a leader, right? It, An yeah. alpha, yeah, for sure. It's and maybe this, this may be going a little further than than what you said, but it certainly. Uh, a, a man's or, or woman's relationship with a dog is, is sort of serves as a, a weird kind of interface, right? Or, or a, a surrogate to a relationship with a more wild uh, animal. I yeah, guess. yeah. Um, An unconditional love. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He, he, he felt it very strongly for his dog. I think we see that reflected with Steve and Mike that – I mean that's pure love, right? You you hit my dog, I'm gonna beat the crap out of you, kind of thing. Yeah, like uh, he makes a remark that that it's it's shitty for for a man to turn a back on a friend, but it's like almost unforgivable if you turn your back on your dog, right? Like there's some there's some sort of statement like that in this story, but yeah. it makes the point that because you are the caretaker and the 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 owner, like the the person that's. It, he's your dog like it's it's that sort of possession thing which is which is i think is a unique relationship here talking about the relationship between uh a man and like uh uh or or like humans and their sort of i don't know what the right word is here like i like, think there's a trust there yeah right? yeah you, the dog trusts you to love it and protect it. So you have to back that up. And, and Mike and Steve, they have that relationship that if Mike is offended, if Mike is hit, if Mike is treated poorly, Steve's going to come to his rescue. There, there's something there. I feel like that's very primal that, that Robert E. Howard believes in that that's, that's better than, this facsimile of a relationship you can build with a human. And it's, well, it's, and it's almost even familial, right? Like you have that relationship of like your younger cousin or, or your, like, like if you have some, some younger sibling or, or a kid or something like that, like you have that, that defensive sort of, I got to take care of my own sort of uh, association. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) We're stumbling over a lot of ideas, but I feel like we're really onto something here. No, you know, when you mentioned the Jack London story, I remember reading The Call of the Wild, and that is about a dog that was domesticated that that 
ends up running with wolves, right? Yeah, he's a he's a bulldog that uh, was raised like in the fight. I can't remember. It's actually on my list of like reading again, but he's like in the fight pits he escapes starts out in california ends up going north to the yukon okay ends up on a sled and the end of it is he gives himself over and like becomes part of the pack like not because of faults of his own but just by happenstance of hey he's in this primal wilderness and that's he hears these wolves calling at night and ultimately he ends up going back like going to them i remember reading that story um, do you remember the the film adaptation of White Fang? Mm-mm, no, what was it? Yeah, yeah, there's a. I think it's maybe Disney, um, but there's a film adaptation of of another Jack London novel uh-huh. or novelette uh, called White Fang, and I loved that movie as a kid. And that movie is kind of the inverse of the Call of the Wild, where a a guy kind of. Uh, is trying to tame, or I'm trying to remember because it's been a really long time, but the the dog, White Fang, is its name. And uh, it's either a wolf dog or it's a uh, like a Malamute or a Husky that used to be uh, tame, but now it's not, or, or it's the child of, of some dog that was... Right. And so he tries to tame the dog, and there's some other guy who just wants to shoot it and shoot all the wolves and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it's kind of, as I remember the inverse of the call of the wild. Um, but I think the, the Jack London connection here is, is definitely pertinent because, uh, I, I think, I think we're onto something here with, with this dog as representation of, uh, something that is a little bit wilder than, uh, the civilized man. And even though Costigan isn't the most civilized dude, he, he seems to at least, he seems to at least live in the confines of civilization better than other Howard characters that we've seen. Right. But he's now, a, he's a oh, middle ground. That Steve and Mike represent this idea that you can be civilized and be a part of a ship and build relationships with humans, but you're still uncivilized enough that you can beat the crap out of somebody in revenge for, for an affront. So now that we're talking about this, it makes me, I'm, uh, I feel like I have like half, half baked ideas that are coming in this episode. But so, so with these stories taking place in the Pacific in, in traditionally like air quotes, like uncivilized, i.e. non-white sort of, areas mm-hmm. i wonder if that ties into this too like if we could sort of sort of riff on the idea of mike steve bulldog uh uh sort of sort of backcountry sailor slash boxer you know they're they're a little bit wild they're on the peripheries of what would be civilized society they're out in the seven seas of 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 these ruffians like this is not the civilized world where these dudes are roman i think there's a lot to unpack here about like the setting of where these guys are too. I, I agree that Howard, what was, what's that quote we've read before about, uh, a civilized man can walk around and say what he wants without fear of his head being split in two. But yeah, but a barbarian knows that you say something and there's, there's something to be done about it. That's what we see here. Like tiger Valoy represents this idea that, this is a civilized establishment. 
you can't have a dog in here. I'm going to hit your dog. And Steve and, and Mike represent this idea that that's wrong. You're, you're bad for doing that. And I'm going to show it to you. Uh, this idea that there's still this call of the wild. They're this, they're this bridge between the Neanderthal and Tiger Valoy, this, this civilized boxer who makes his living beating the shit out of people. <laughs> but, but is still likes to put on airs, right? And has a cane. He's a he's a civilized man, but he breaks the rules. And Steve shows him you can't do that. You can't you can't be that kind of person. I like Otherwise, that. I like that too. A man yeah. like me shows up. <laughs> he's he's a civilized man who uh, thinks that he can insult a uh, an an animal or another person or, or whoever he wants in a more barbaric fashion and doesn't understand the ramifications of that. So he hits, and it, I don't know if we, if we emphasize this point, but when he hits the dog, it's not just like with a stick or something. He has like a lead cane, like, like a it's, weighted it's, sort it's of like thing. a weighted, like I'm going to crack a skull cane. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he <laughs> damn near, if it hadn't have been a bulldog with a massive, like hard skull, he would. He could have killed a, a a lesser animal, like an animal with less of a cranial structure. Get you, wawa. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me high. It makes me uh, just get get all hot around the collar thinking about pretty boy Valoy here. He's. I ain't gonna stand for it. <laughs> well, I think that's an important point to hit. Is that this is a hot button issue, animal abuse, like in modern society. This takes precedent even over baby abuse in some situations. Yeah, absolutely. There are laws right. that protect people that break windows to save a dog over people who break a window to save a, an, a, a baby in a car. But it's – I don't know. It's this weird primal connection in this story. I think that we've hit on it very hard here that the dog is this bridge between – Homo sapiens that conquered the Neanderthal and Homo sapiens that built a civilization like France. Is that fair to say? That, that, that Steve and Mike's relationship represents this middle ground of, of cooperation and understanding of each other rather well, than the master mastee relationship. And some, I, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. And some, in some relationship with, uh, like, there's there's responsibility and stewardship like it's it's that connection like as a like as an ecology like environmental kind of guy i can't help but disassociate like this concept of because you know better you're responsible and because you're responsible there's an ethical sort of moral onus that's placed on you to do something but the onus here is different it is not i am a man this is a dog i must protect the dog it is a this is my friend. He has been with me for X amount of years and he's been wronged and I will stand up for him. It is less of this master master relationship and a more of a, we are partners. I walked off the ship, the sea girl for Mike, the bulldog, and I won't let him be treated like this. I will stand up for him. It's a partnership rather than a than an owner and an owner relationship kind of thing. And and I'm thinking about what you said, John, about 
Homo sapiens conquering Homo neanderthalensis. And if if we go back to that article that you sent us, one of the reasons that the article puts forth that, that Homo sapiens was so successful is that they cooperated with dogs, right? And in the story, one of the reasons that uh, Costigan is so successful is he has a dog that he cooperates with. Right. Tiger Valoy doesn't have that. And uh, <laughs> I know that the intention of the story is not this, but if you squint a little bit, you can sort of see shades of, of that primal knowledge of that Howard knew that cooperating with dogs and having a dog is, is an advantage. Um, you got to fight for something. Yeah. Yeah. You got to fight for yeah. something. Uh, and, and you've got something that also would fight for you. I think that Steve hits on this a couple times that, He's not fight. He he doesn't have anything anymore, right? He's left the sea girl. He has no country, but he's he's fighting for Mike, the bulldog. Yeah. That's his flag. Uh, the bulldog breed. Yeah, the bulldog breed. It's this. It's a powerful reminder of of what you're fighting for, for Steve. And without it, he couldn't beat. He couldn't beat Tiger Valoy. I'll tell you what, we have some scotch and the good ideas just start flowing. <laughs> the water of life. It's, it's here. That's right. I'll be honest. We polished off half a bottle of monkey shoulder over here. I don't yeah, know what yeah, you did, John. That's pretty good. I don't know what damage you've done to your bottle. Uh, I didn't measure it. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably for the best. It's all the bourbon in the world. It's a murder. It's, a murder. it's good stuff. <laughs> I agree with our Facebook commenter that that this is a dark horse candidate for a uh, for REH's best story. It represents a ton of things that he is very passionate about: dogs, Irish heritage, fighting, that sort of thing. Uh, I don't know that I can place it in front of Beyond the Black River, but but it's a powerful tale. Uh, I I loved it. I I loved it very much. I read it in a very small sitting. It just it clearly meant a lot to Howard, and I appreciate that. Yeah, and it obviously opened up a lot of doors to, uh, you know, for us to sort of explore tangents from the story, like uh, Dempsey and like this connection between dogs and people. Yeah, I think I'm gonna have to read Call of Wa- Call of the Wild between now and the uh, <laughs> the next recording. Yeah, that that may be my one thing. I'll come back with y'all on that. Okay. I wish I could pet Patches. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Patches is probably a good dog. A, a collie slash, uh, he's not he's not a coon hound, he's like a, a foxhound mix. So, in the picture that I saw on the, uh, the Lune, or Lune, uh, article that you sent, Josh, had, like, he looks like a big, big old nice dog. He looks yeah. kind of like Lucy, John. <laughs> I mean, Lucy's kind of- Have I kinda, talked about Lucy? extensively on the show no just, just tonight just tonight tell us a lucy story Lucy is a uh a catahoula leopard dog it's a unregistered breed with the akc it's a, a swamp dog they hunt boars things like that she's just a good dog she loves people and she loves taking care of each other main calling in life she seems very lovey yeah she's, she's in ener- she's energetic that dog is a ball of energy yeah <laughs> She's always loved people. She's learning to love a baby now that we have one. Uh, that's been that's been interesting. But yeah, she loves humans. She we've taken her to a dog park before, 
And she's like, I don't care about these dogs. I want to see all the people that are at the dog park. <laughs> we may have to plug in some dog pictures on the blog post. Here. I think we might have to, yeah. <laughs> I've got a really good one of, of John and uh, Lucy. Nice. Let's go pet a dog. Yeah, give yeah, give go it, pet a dog. Give a dog a hug. Yeah, quit quit acting like quit, quit, quit acting so tough. Go go hug a dog. Scratch his belly. Give it a treat. It's a good boy. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what do we have coming up next, guys? I don't even know. I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we at? Uh, I have the I have the story list. What so, are we on the road of kings? <laughs> road of champions. Road of oh, champions. I'm like, I'm you're a, a few I'm roads a, back. <laughs> you you backtracked, son. Uh, this is this will be episode five coming up. Um, is that true? Yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, and so we have listed uh, Christmas special, the two fisted Santa Claus. Nice. <laughs> We're a little so bit behind. We are timely. A long time ago, folks. Look, this has been a rough few months for us. Um, but uh, we could skip forward and do the champion of the forecastle. Or we could just say, screw it, we're doing Christmas in February. Santa Claus, uh, what's the right word, uh, doesn't give a flip. Doesn't give a hoot. He, <laughs> he doesn't give a hoot. So what do you guys think, well, Santa story or the other story? What's the other one, Forecastle? Uh, Champion of the Forecastle. Let's go to Champion of the Forecastle. Okay. okay. We'll come on back to, like, I feel like we should save any chance we get for a Christmas episode. For Christmas? We should, we should hold on. <laughs> we should hold on to that. I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> it's special. <laughs> the next story will be the Champion of the Forecastle, and I bet that one is in the public domain as well, so we'll post a link to it as soon as we can. Cool. Hey, Josh. Where can all of the people find us? Well, if they were so inclined, uh, they could find us on the web at thecromcast.blogspot.com. You could email us if you wanted to leave us some feedback or tell us, uh, you know, that you're tired of listening to our drunken ramblings. Thecromcast at gmail.com. You could find us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash thecromcast. You can tweet at us at thecromcast. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, basically anywhere you can find a podcast. Basically, if you're listening to us now, keep doing that, whatever it is you're doing. If you're catching <laughs> podcasts, you're on the right track. You are on the right track. Um, and you can even call us. The number is 859-429-CROM. You can leave us a voicemail. We'll play it on the show and respond in kind. Uh, and so until next time, we'll see you a little bit further down the road of champions. My bulldog is big and strong. You mess with him and you won't live long. His bark is mean and souls his bite And he don't ever lose a fight dogs with me night and day When I work, when I play When I walk, baby, when I ride My bulldog's always at my side My bulldog 
talking about my bulldog You best not mess with my bulldog License, baby, paid no fees. Cause we ain't living on our knees. God's my family and my home. You know, it's nobody's business, baby, but my own. My bulldog. I'm talking about my bulldog. That's not left with my bulldog. And he's never far away Talking about my bulldog Oh, my bad bulldog That's not best with my bulldog Screen printed bedbugs